Good morning, College Park Fishers. What an exciting uh, morning today. Uh, I could barely sleep last night. I was so excited. This is a uh, this is a real honor to be able to serve you in the preaching uh, of the word. And so let's let's go to the Lord in prayer and just ask for His help now. Oh God, we praise you for your sovereignty. God, we acknowledge the fact that. No one is here by accident or that you have orchestrated our lives to be in this room at this very moment. So we give you praise for that. Lord, we ask that your word would not come back void today, but that it would accomplish its purpose. And Lord, we ask that part of that purpose would be to exalt Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would experience and encounter him through the written word today, Lord, because we know if we experience Jesus We will never be the same. So, Lord, give us clarity. Open our eyes to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, movies and songs and stories are powerful because they have the potential to produce a dramatic response in our lives. And we've all had that type of experience where we've watched a movie, we've listened to a song, we've read a story, and it's caused us to feel differently or to think differently or to live differently because it was so powerful. And yet, on the other hand, we've had those experiences where we've watched movies, we've listened to songs, we've read stories, and there's been no effect on our lives. Now, have you ever wondered why that is? Why does that happen where we have some experiences that produce a dramatic response in our lives and yet other experiences that just don't? I wish I could show you a video clip of, uh, of my two-year-old daughter when she watches Elmo and, uh, and the intro to Elmo comes on. She just loses her mind. She goes nuts. She just starts screaming, Elmo, Elmo, Elmo. And she's like sitting like a foot from the screen because she's enthralled with Elmo. And Elmo is powerful for her because it produces a dramatic response. Now, when my wife and I, when we watch that show, we're not moved at all. I know that's not a surprise to any of us here, but, um, but there's no dramatic response in my wife and I as we watch that show. See, some experiences produce a dramatic response in our lives, and yet others don't. Now, the story that we have today in John chapter 4 is dealing with a woman who has an experience with Jesus that results in a dramatic response in her life. She was just having a normal, routine day. She was getting water from a well and has an encounter with Jesus that changes her life completely. And so as we move through the passage today, um, I really want to look at what type of response did this woman have because of her encounter with Jesus and why? Why did she have this encounter? What can we learn from it? And so as we move from this passage, uh, I've I've really broken up this section uh, into three different episodes this morning. And so uh, the first section I want to look at is the woman's encounter in verses 7 through 30. The woman's encounter. And then we'll actually skip the second and move to the third section, which is in verses 39 through 42, which deals with the town's response. And then we'll close by looking at the second section there with a challenge that Jesus gives the disciples. So the disciples challenge in verses 31 through 38. Now, before we uh, jump into the woman's encounter, let me just kind of set the scene here and give you some context to know what's going on in John chapter 4. As we uh, heard from Dale recite, 
we learn that Jesus had heard that the Pharisees knew that Jesus' popularity was growing. And so Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John, so he left and headed north for Galilee. Okay, so he was at Judea, and he heads north towards Galilee. Now, what's interesting about this is that in order for Jesus to head to Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria. Geographically, that's correct, that Samaria is right in the middle, so he had to pass through Samaria. And yet, what's, what's interesting about that is that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. There was extreme animosity. There was hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. Just a short history lesson here, that after Assyria captured Samaria in 722 B.C., They intermarried with the surviving Israelites and in essence created their own religion. And so they had their own temple and they started worshiping at their own mountain in Samaria. And so there was this hostility between Jews and Samaritans. And yet John tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, on one hand, yeah, he did have to pass through Samaria, But any normal Jew would not have passed through Samaria. They would have taken the longer route and gone through the Transjordan. And yet not Jesus. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to talk to this woman. This was almost a divine appointment for Jesus to pursue this woman at the well. Another thing to point out here is that John, the author, places this encounter that Jesus has with this woman right after the encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. It's almost as if we're supposed to compare these two experiences. And so if you remember John chapter 3, the encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a man. He was educated. He was powerful. He was respected. We know his name. He comes to Jesus at nighttime. Now we compare him to this woman at the well. This woman is a Samaritan. She's unlearned. She's a social outcast. She's a categorical sinner. She has no name in this passage and comes to Jesus and has this encounter during the day. Now what do we learn about this comparison here? We learn that Jesus pursues both kinds of people. That Jesus pursues the Nicodemuses of this world and he pursues the women at the well. That he pursues those who have it all together, whose moral and spiritual resume is pristine, and he pursues those who are at the end of themselves, whose spiritual resume is filled with sin and with shame. Jesus pursues both kinds of people. I heard one person say it this way, that your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. So the Nicodemuses. And you are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. So the women at the well, and that is good news for every single person in this room, that Jesus pursues both kinds of people. Now, let's look at this encounter that Jesus has with this woman. First, let me point out to you the condition of this woman. In verses 6 and 7, we learn that this woman goes to the well at midday alone. That at midday, this would have been the hottest part of the day, and yet she's there and she's alone. And what we learn there is that this woman is an outcast. That no one wanted anything to do with her in her town. That she was isolated. She was isolated most likely because of her reputation. 
that she's had five husbands and she's now living with another man. This, this woman is gripped with her shame that she's all alone at this well, that this is how she lived her life. Now, it's important to, to know just how intimately connected shame was to this woman, that most likely she was believing the lies that you are what other people label you, that you are your failures, that your sin defines you, that your worth is caught up in your shame, that most likely this woman is probably wondering, does God even love me anymore? Does God have a purpose for me? Has God given up on me? We, we see that here in verse 7, this type of insecurity and shame kind of coming out as she interacts with Jesus. Look at verse 7 here. Uh, Jesus asks this woman, she, he says, give me a drink. And she responds and she says, how can a Jew ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? In other words, we can almost hear her say, why are you talking with me? Sir, do you realize who I am and what I am? That Jews don't interact with Samaritans. That rabbis don't interact with sinners like me. Can can you sense the amount of shame and insecurity that's in this woman and how she interacts with Jesus? Let me ask you this morning. have Have you ever felt that way in your life? Have you ever felt a type of shame, a type of inward dirtiness that that maybe you've wondered if if God still loves you. Maybe the things that you've done in your life, maybe something was done to you and, and you're just gripped with shame. Maybe you've believed the lie that your failures do define you, that, that your sin is your identity. Maybe you're wondering if God has a purpose for you. Have you ever felt that way? Can you relate to this woman wondering if God has forgotten about you? That maybe for you, shame plays a dominant role in how you parent. Maybe shame plays a dominant role in how you are as a spouse or how you are as a friend or or how you are as an employee, wondering if you can ever be freed from this shame. Can you relate with this woman? Now, notice Jesus' response. Look at this here. Uh, He says, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus initiates this conversation with this woman who is gripped with shame and and some type of insecurity and immediately starts talking about the gift of God that he offers. Now, how about that for a personal evangelism one on one lesson? Now, look at this living water here. The background is in the Old Testament. Most likely in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where God declares, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So in other words, they have rejected the fresh running supply of God's goodness, where true life is, and chose stagnant waters of themselves with nothing to sustain true life. This is describing the woman's condition here. And so Jesus uses this metaphor of living water to speak about God, to speak about his grace, to speak about his unconditional love, the the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Water promises cleansing. 
And in this context, Jesus is using this physical analogy of thirstiness, of water, to speak about this spiritual reality. The the fact is, is that all of our souls are thirsty and can only be quenched by Jesus Christ, the true living water, because in him is eternal life. And yet this woman is just struggles to make that connection. Look at verse 11 here. She says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? See, she's just not tracking with Jesus here. She's on the physical. She's talking about the physical water, and yet Jesus is on the spiritual. So Jesus tries again. Look at verse 13. It says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus again references promises from the Old Testament where God's people will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 12 and then Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. It says, Come, all you are thirsty. Come to the waters that you may live. Jesus is talking about being satisfied with salvation in him. The Samaritan woman is still missing it. She's not making this connection. Now, if I were Jesus at this point, I'd be so frustrated, I would just kind of walk away from this conversation. Or um, if, if you're a dad in the room and your child's in that why stage, where your child's asking you why like a million times. What, what do we tend to do, fathers, after like the third or fourth why question? We tend to say, go talk to your mom, right? That, that's what I would do in this conversation. I'd be so frustrated. And yet, look at how Jesus responds here in the next verse. He pivots and he tries a different strategy and he says, go call your husband. And the woman responds, I, I, I have no husband. And he says, you're right, you've actually had five husbands and the man that you're with now is not your husband. Jesus turns the conversation and it gets really, really personal here. There's a huge shift here. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is trying to target the heart of this woman. He's trying to get to the root issue because she misunderstands her greatest need. And so Jesus is exposing the fact that this woman has been searching and searching and searching for satisfaction. She's searching for something to validate her existence. And so Jesus is not shaming this woman. Jesus is trying to help this woman understand and see that her greatest need is never going to be satisfied with with men or with marriage, but will only be satisfied in Jesus Christ, in the salvation that he has. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's why he pivots. Now, how easy it is for us to forget what our greatest need is. Isn't it so easy for us to, to be so consumed in the busyness of life, in, in our routine, that, that we forget what our souls long for the most? That, that we can look to all kinds of other things and, and other people to try to satisfy what our souls are yearning for. I mean, if we were honest, we, we can look to success and, and accomplishments in our careers to satisfy our deepest longings. That, that we can look to, to having the perfect family or having the most well-behaved kids, or, or we can look to our own image or our own reputation that, 
Even for me, my temptation is, is launching a church successfully and trying to have that satisfy my deepest longing. And yet, what Jesus is doing here, and something that we need to hear this morning, is that our deepest need is to be satisfied with Jesus Christ. It is to be satisfied with who He is and what He has done. I came across a, a quote by John Piper who talks about this um, very, very well here. He says this. He says, The deepest longing of the human heart is to know and enjoy the glory of God. That we were made for this, to see it, to savor it, and show it. That is why we exist. And when we trade the treasures for images, everything is disordered. The sun of God's glory was made to shine at the center of the solar system of our soul. And when it does, all the planets of our life are held in their proper orbit. But when the sun is displaced, everything flies apart. That the healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming, all-attracting place at the center. That that is our greatest need, is to be satisfied with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that today? That what your soul yearns for more than anything is to be satisfied with Jesus continually. To, to look to Him, to His person, and to the work of what He's done on the cross. That years ago that Jesus Christ got up on a human torture tool and took our place on the cross. That He took our penalty. That He absorbed all of the wrath that was intended for us and He took our place on the cross. That He erased our debt that our sin caused. It was Jesus. Do you believe that, that our greatest need is to be satisfied with Him? And if, if you're not a Christian here today, we, we love that you're here. And, and our desire is that you would taste and see that Jesus is good. That you would respond to Him in faith because of what He's done for you on the cross. That He is so good. That He is so faithful. That He is so true. That He is for you and not against you. But do you believe today that your greatest need above all else is to be satisfied with the living water of Jesus Christ. Not success, not having the perfect family, but in Christ. Now, Jesus is trying to expose that need with the woman here. And the conversation continues in verse 19. The woman is just stunned here. She's stunned in the fact that Jesus knows everything about her, something that she says in verse 29. So she concludes that this man must be a prophet. So look what she does here in response. She wants to talk a little theology with Jesus. She starts talking about that the Jews claim that you can only worship on the mountain in Jerusalem. And she is saying that we, the Samaritans, worship on this mountain because that's where our forefathers worshipped. Notice what she's doing here. She's, she's trying to dodge the conviction of her sin. She's trying to distract Jesus by talking theology with him because she's been found out. But Jesus won't let her. Look, look at Jesus' response in, in verses 21 through 24. Three main points here in this response. Here's the first one. In verse 21, Jesus essentially says that a time is coming when, in which it won't matter what mountain that you're worshiping on. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, we're not going to debate what mountain we're on when, when we need to worship. 
And the second point in verse 22 is, although there will come a time in which it doesn't matter which mountain you're worshiping on, Jesus makes it clear to this woman that salvation is from the Jews. That the Samaritans worship what they do not know. They, they stand outside the stream of God's revelation. So their worship cannot be characterized by truth. And so the Jews, on the other hand, stand within the stream of God's saving salvation. For salvation comes from the Jews. Now what Jesus is saying to this woman is that you need something beyond just a mountain in order to worship God in spirit and truth. Now, the third point of of Jesus' response in verses 23 and 24 has to do with what a true worshiper looks like. He says that the time is now in which location doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what mountain you're on when you worship. What matters is the object of your worship and how you worship. That the object is the Father through Jesus by the Spirit, and it must be done in spirit and truth. And in verse 24, Jesus uses this phrase, God is spirit, to really provide the weight of why the Father wants people to worship in spirit and truth. That God is spirit. God is the creator of the universe. God is all-powerful. That in Him is the origin of life and the sustainer of life. That in Him there is no darkness at all. So he's telling this woman, you need something beyond yourself in order to worship him accurately. And then he says that you're to worship him by spirit and truth. In the Greek here, this is somewhat significant that the preposition in actually governs both nouns here. That Jesus says in spirit and truth. That these are not two separate characteristics of worship, but they're a package deal. It's in spirit and truth. You need the spirit of Christ and the words of Christ to characterize your worship. That our worship is not just on a specific location or just on Sunday morning, but it's all day, every day. And we're worshiping God through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, conformed by the word of God on the basis of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. So what's Jesus doing here? Why why does he respond in this way to the woman? Well, Jesus is showing this woman that she has a worship problem. And Jesus is trying to redirect the object of her worship onto himself. That she's been worshiping other men. She's been worshiping marriage. And what she needs to do is worship him. And so this woman finds herself in a conversation with a Jewish rabbi who she believes is, is a prophet who's telling her that you can worship God in spirit and truth and it doesn't matter what mountain you're on. It doesn't matter what type of sin you have in your life, that you can worship Him in spirit and truth. And yet look at verse 25. She's just still not tracking with Jesus. She says, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. She still doesn't get it. I I think the root issue for this woman is the sin of unbelief. That she's not believing in what Jesus is saying is true, that the Messiah is standing right in front of her. And I think one of the things that's manifesting itself out of the sin of unbelief is this someday mentality of life. And if you look at her response, she says that, 
I know that Messiah is coming. And in other words, that the Messiah will, will come here someday out in the future. But, but I don't need to respond to you right now. That what you're saying might be true, but, but I'm not going to respond until someday out in the future. It's this someday mentality of life. Have you ever struggled with the someday mentality of life? I mean, maybe in small ways, if, if we lose our car keys, we, we think, oh, someday I'll find my car keys. Or, or maybe something more significant, if we lose a job, or if we're looking for a spouse, or if we're looking for purpose in life, we can, we can say to ourselves, well, you know, I can't find what I'm looking for, but someday out in the future, I'll find it. Someday I'll find a job or someday I'll get into physical shape. It's this someday mentality of life that we see with this woman. I know that the Messiah is coming someday out in the future, but, but sir, I don't need to respond to you right now. And if we were honest, that, that someday mentality of life can even creep into our spiritual lives, can it? Where we think, you know, Jesus, you know, I'm not going to respond to you in obedience, but someday I will. Someday when I'm nailing my devotions every day. Or, or someday when I, when I know enough theology, that, that's when I'll start sharing you to my neighbors. It's this someday mentality of life. And then the conversation takes a dramatic turn. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, I who speak to you am He. I who speak to you and he, when, when Jesus says this, everything changes for this woman. That she finally makes the connection. That Jesus is what her soul longs for. That Jesus is her greatest need. She starts to put the pieces together. Now look at her response. Look how dramatic this is in verse 28. It says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me, Everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. What a response. And Jesus redirects this woman's object of her worship, exposes her sin. She sees that Jesus is the Messiah and she goes and she tells her whole village about who Jesus is. This is a tremendous response. This is a normal response to encountering Jesus is that we go and we tell. Now, look at how the town responds. We'll, we'll skip over the disciples' challenge. We'll save that for the end. Now, let's look at how the town reacts in verses 39 through 42. So the woman goes and tells them about Jesus. Look at the response. It says that many Samaritans believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And they even go as far as asking Jesus to stay for two more days. Look at how dramatic this is. That, that the town actually believes this woman. Think about that. This woman goes from being the town outcast. She was isolated. No one wanted anything to do with her. She moves from there to the town actually believing her testimony and believing in Jesus. And as I was studying this, I, I couldn't get over why. Like, why would the town believe this woman? This woman had five husbands, was, le- was living with another man that wasn't her husband. Why believe her? And, and as I was thinking about this, it's because she finally realized what her greatest need was. 
that her greatest need was to be satisfied with Jesus and that was just gushing out of her. It was just pouring out. She couldn't contain the knowledge of Jesus Christ. She had to share it with other people in her village. But she had that look in her eye. She had that look in her eye that, that many of us have, that, that we have a relationship with Jesus, that we have found the lover of our souls, that it's in Him. And they believed her because her life was being transformed. They actually believe her. Have you ever had that experience in your own life? Have you ever had that type of experience where people believe in Jesus because of your testimony? That people believe in Jesus because of how you live, because you've shared the gospel with them? Have you had that type of experience? If we make this really, really practical this morning and, and we followers of Jesus represent the woman and let's say that the town represents the city of fishers, that if we claim to have experienced the greatness of Jesus, that if, if we claim to, to knowing that Jesus is our greatest need, then our job is to go and tell Our job is to go and share Jesus with the people in Fishers and all throughout Indianapolis. Because if we flip it on the other side, if if we don't, if we don't go and tell, if we aren't sharing Jesus with others, then, then can we really claim to have experienced Jesus? Can we really claim that that we know that Jesus is the greatest need and the greatest answer, the greatest hope, the greatest purpose in the city of Fishers if we're not going and telling. That not just bringing people here on Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday, we're engaging with people that are lost. We're talking to our neighbors. We're talking to our coworkers. We're talking to people at the gym and the grocery store and our dentist and, and people who cut our... We're sharing Jesus because we have finally found the person that knows everything about us and yet loves us the same? Are we going and telling? Because the woman did here and and the town responds with believing in this woman's testimony. As we close here with the third section here, we can jump up to verse 31. We, We look at the challenge that Jesus gives to the disciples Look at verse 31. The disciples say to Jesus, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Now, what does Jesus mean here by the fact that they had this phrase in, in this time that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Well, what happened here is that they would, they would sow seed into the ground and then they would wait for about four months and then the harvest would come. And what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to correct the disciples' someday mentality of life. He's trying to correct this mindset spiritually that you don't need to wait anymore, that the field, the, the harvest is ready, that there's no gap, there's no time of waiting someday out in the future to share the gospel. Jesus is saying that I've sown the seed and the harvest is ready. Now look at the challenge that he gives to the disciples, a challenge that I believe is for us today. He says, 
in verse 35. He says, lift up your eyes and see the harvest. He says, lift up your eyes and see, see the opportunities all around us. Not, not someday out in the future, but today. Not, not someday when, when we have a church building, but today that this is our challenge is to lift up and see all the opportunities around us that, that he's confronting even our someday mentality as a church. That this is our role. This is our responsibility is to go and to tell. I couldn't get over the fact that this woman, when, when she left her water jar and, and she goes and she walks back into town to tell the people about Jesus, I, I wonder what was going through her mind. I wonder what type of excuses or, or reasons that, that she was battling. I, I wonder if she was battling the excuse of incompetence. I wonder if she was wrestling with, uh, I don't know enough. I, I don't know enough theology. I don't know enough about Jesus. How, how can I share with the people in my town? I wonder if she was battling the, the excuse or, or the reason of her failures. She's got sin in her life. She's got this deep history. I, I, I can't share Jesus with other people. I, I'm not good enough. I wonder if she was battling the, the excuse of, of just what other people think of her. She's thinking, man, people don't like me. That I'm isolated. I, I, I can't share Jesus with other people. And yet, she does it. And, and she does it because she knows how great Jesus is. What type of reasons or excuses are you battling with today that, that might be keeping you from, from sharing Jesus with other people? What, what type of reasons are, are you battling the someday mentality of life in your spiritual life, where you think, I, I don't know enough about the gospel. I don't know enough theology. I can't go and share. I, I've got sin in my life. Or, or I'm, I'm a little afraid of what other people might think of me. Can I encourage you this morning, just as a pastor, can I encourage you that God uses His people to accomplish His purposes in the world, not because of how good we are, and not because of how adequate we are, because we, we have it all together, but because of how good He is and how adequate He is and because He has it all together. That in the same way that God used this Samaritan woman to, to share Jesus with this whole town, He wants to use us in the city of Fishers to make Jesus' name famous to those around us. And, and not someday out in the future, but today because we we don't have a god necessarily of someday we have a god of today of right now of in this moment and he wants to use us to reach the city of fishers and to reach indianapolis are we going to be faithful with that to going and telling because we have seen and tasted that jesus is good now as we as we close here we got a couple minutes left i, I just want to share um just four practical steps on evangelism. Just briefly with you. I didn't just want to give this challenge and then, and then leave you with nothing practical. But these are four things that have really marked me um, as someone who loves to share Jesus with people and hopefully it's of, of a help to you. Here's the first one. Feed your soul Jesus daily. Feed your soul Jesus every day. 
And the fact is that we can't share what we don't have. And if we are not privately worshiping Jesus and rehearsing the gospel to our own souls, then we're probably not going to share him publicly. And so let me just encourage you, carve out time each day to just soak your soul in the gospel and in the greatness of Jesus. Second thing here, pray for the lost. Pray for the lost and and even pray for the lost by name. And this has been just a challenge for me is I need to go and learn people's names. I need to knock on the doors of my neighbors and introduce myself and know their names so I can pray for them by name. And this is really important because it's God who saves. So we need to be praying. But, but also, this will heighten your awareness of opportunities to share the gospel when you're praying every day for the lost. Third thing here is be strategic in your everyday routine. I'm always amazed at the amount of gospel opportunities that I have as someone who's cutting my hair or, or cleaning my teeth or when I'm working out at the gym or when I'm interacting with neighbors. That we've got opportunities all around us to share the gospel with people, but are our eyes open to them? Uh, there's a quote here um, by a, a book called Everyday Church, and this book is actually going to be out there in the back and it's a resource we want to give you for free, um, just one per family that will kind of help give you more uh, practical steps on evangelism. It says this, it says, What we do need is gospel intentionality. That ordinary life with gospel intentionality is all well and good, but if you take out the gospel intentionality, then all you have is ordinary life. And everyone does that. We need Christian communities that saturate ordinary life with the gospel. We want God talk to be normal, talking about what we are reading in the Bible, praying together whenever we share needs, delight together in the gospel, sharing our spiritual struggles with both Christians and unbelievers. And we've got opportunities all around us that God has in his sovereignty placed us in those moments to share the gospel. And then the last one here is be intentional about gospel opportunities. And so we've got opportunities all around us. And as we interact with neighbors and friends who are lost and our coworkers and so on, life happens. That crises happen. People lose jobs. People have health concerns. And let it be us that people who have no hope go to in in order to pray with them, in order to give them hope. And so as life happens... Look for those opportunities to share the gospel. So be prepared in season and out of season for those opportunities to share Jesus with others. College Park Fishers, we, we have been placed in this city for a purpose. Out of God's kindness, out of His faithfulness, out of His sovereignty, that, that we're here not by accident, that we're here not out of convenience, This church wasn't just planted to to make it a shorter drive for you to come to church, but that we were planted here to reach the city of Fishers and reach all of Indianapolis. And we live in a city that's thirsty. I don't know if you know that, but we, we live in a city that desperately needs the hope of Jesus Christ. And so here's here's my challenge for you as I close is just take a step today. Just take a step. Wherever you are spiritually in in your journey of sharing Christ with people, just take a step. That's going to look differently for each and every one of us. Maybe for some of us, 
our step is to, is to go knock on the door of our neighbors and actually introduce ourselves. Maybe our step is to interact with someone who was lost, with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Or maybe our step today is, is to take that coworker out to lunch and, and just talk about your story, about your testimony. Maybe others of us, it's, it's actually share the gospel with relationships that we've been building for some time. But let me just challenge you to be faithful. Be obedient to whatever step the Lord is placing on your heart today. So let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for the gospel. Lord, for the fact that the gospel not only saves us, the gospel not only matures us, but the gospel also sends us. And so, Lord, we give you praise that you are a massive God, Lord, that you are a sovereign God, and, Lord, that you have placed us in this city for a specific purpose, and that is to make your name known. And so, Lord, we pray that you would equip us, that you would compel us, Lord, that you would fill us with the greatness of Jesus that just overflows in our life to others. And so, Lord, would you give us a passion for the lost. We pray that people would come to know Jesus through College Park Fishers and through the people in this room. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.